Greetings, today's date is December 12th, 2022, and welcome to the 11th episode of the Commodore Chronicles podcast. Today's featured review is System 3's The Last Ninja. Thanks for tuning in, I hope you stick around and enjoy. Commodore Chronicles, a C64-centric podcast featuring news, reviews, guides, and most of all, your feedback. If you want your feedback featured on the next episode of the Commodore Chronicles, stay tuned to the end of the episode where the next review title is announced. Then subsequent posts will be made on twitter.com forward slash c64chronicles and facebook.com forward slash c64chronicles where feedback can be left. If you don't have access to those social media sources, please feel free to send me feedback directly to me at CommodoreChronicles at gmail.com. If you want to support the efforts of the Commodore Chronicles and Fine and Dandy podcasts, you could do so over at patreon.com forward slash c64chronicles. There's two patron tiers of support, one being the Fast Load Collective. Fast loaders have their names shouted from the mountaintops on every episode of the podcast and every Thursday night Twitch stream. Fast loaders can also submit their own audio reviews for use in that month's podcast episode. Something I would definitely love to hear out of people. Maybe there's some new budding podcaster out there. Fast load tier is a $3 a month tier. The second tier is for one entity, the VIC2 sponsorship. Do you create hardware or software for vintage computers or consoles? Do you make hardware for podcasting or streaming? Have the podcast brought to you NPR style by your organization. Have a segment of the show and stream dedicated to your product. The VIC2 sponsorship is a $20 a month level. And you're probably asking yourself, where is this money going, Adam? One, this money goes back into the show. It goes into operating expenses. Um, It goes into equipment purchases. Um, But secondly, it goes into future endeavors. One of those being a local quarterly show called the Southeast Michigan Vintage Computer Club that's in the process of being crafted and planned now. But more info on that very soon. And lastly, the part that blows my mind every day. That people have chose to to part with their hard-earned funds to support this show. So I want to thank my Fast Load Collective, Chris Petzl, Jim Pones, Matthew Warren, and our newest patron member, Eric Nelson. Thank you so much, guys, for your support. I appreciate each and every one of you. And with that, let's check out some news. It is Anchor Man, not Anchor Lady, and that is a scientific fact, huh? News item number one, the Vic 2 Kawari is now for sale. The 65, 67, 65, 69... 8562 and 8565 are all the VIC-2 chip versions on a Commodore 64. There's never been a replacement for those. There's no ARM-based, there's no there's no equivalent for that type of chip until now. And it's only for the 6567 and 6569 chips, but it's known as the VIC-2 Kawari. 
It is a FPGA based um, small single board that slots right into the slot for the VIC-2. It comes in two different designs. There's a mini and a, and a large one. The, the large one has an HDMI out implementation where the mini one uses the, uh, the, the typical um, Lumachroma output of the Commodore 64 itself. It looks like a really promising effort. Um, it's not 100% yet, but it works really well in all the tests that I've seen. And you can check that out at Essential.com forward slash Vic II dash K-A-W-A-R-I Kawari. News item number two, Muddy Racers is released. Brought to us by the mind of Monty Boyd, who is responsible for a recent release, Knights and Slimes, is Muddy Racers. Muddy Racers is a 10-track, um, three different stages, and it is a top-down racing title, very similar to like a super sprint or an off-road with bouncy and very kind of loose mechanics. Very neat-looking game. You can check it out for uh, as a digital download on itch.io for $6.99, or you could buy a physical copy from Protovision. News item number three, the C64 gets a port of Duck Hunt. Well, what's special about that is that, yes, it has light gun support, and it also has mouse support, though you can play the game with a joystick as well. It features that really colorful, wonderful graphic that was known as Duck Hunt on the NES. You have to check it out. You can download a copy for yourself at csdb.dk. News item number four, Eye of the Beholder has been released. Easily the most anticipated title of the last few years has been Eye of the Beholder. Though it's an unofficial version, some of the original programmers that worked on the Amiga version have worked on this one as well. It has been in process for many years now. And boy, did they deliver. It has beautiful graphics, excellent sound, and the interface works just as it should. However, there are some issues right now with the Ultimate 64 and Kung Fu Flash uh, with some of the implementations of those. Um, however, there I know they're working on that right at the moment. So you can get this over at eotb64.com or you can download it from csdp.dk. News item number five, the Southeast Michigan Vintage Computer Club. One of the things that I have wanted for so long in this area is a gathering of people who love vintage computers, vintage consoles, and want to get together, hang out, and kind of show off their wares. So I came up with the idea of the Southeast Michigan Vintage Computer Club, or SEMVIC. Um, and it's really starting to take shape. So I do have an estimated venue of the Waterford Warming House. It's in Oakland County, which is kind of like a between a 20 to 50 minute drive for kind of all of the major metropolitan areas, whether that's the Detroit area, the Lansing area, or the Flint area. Um, I'm hoping that the first meetings can be either, um, I'm thinking either January 28th or February 18th. They're both Saturdays. 
And the pricing is going to be as follows. We need at least 15 people because it's $165 to rent the Waterford Warming House for six hours approximately. So the pricing will go as follows. If we have at least 15 people, the event will take place. And that'll be $15 a person, and it'll include water, coffee, and soda. However, if we get at least 20 people, that'll free us up at $15 to have the drinks, but also have a pizza dinner. So um, I really hope to get this thing spearheaded and get it off the ground. So you can check out information on that at semichiganvcc.blogspot.com. And you can also check out my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed, there'll be information there as well. So I'm hoping to get together with a couple extra guys in the area and really spearhead this thing and get it going. I hope to see you there too. News item number six, Fine and Tandy is undergoing a slight programming change. If you follow my Twitter or Facebook feeds, you'll see that I picked up a Tandy 1000 TL in mint condition. So I thought it would be a disservice to not include it in the Fine and Tandy podcast. So now we'll cover whether games play well on an 8088 equipped Tandy 1000 EX or HX, or we'll cover how well it plays on a 286 equipped Tandy 1000 TX or TL or TL2 or TL3. So um, now it'll be Fine and Tandy a Tandy 1000 podcast. News item number seven, the Commodore Chronicles presents 486 Deluxe. 486 Deluxe is going to be another podcast brought to you by the Commodore Chronicles. It's going to feature games from the late DOS era and games from the early Windows era. The first game we're going to cover on the podcast is Star Trek The Next Generation of Final Unity. It's currently what I'm playing on Twitch right at the moment. You'll be able to catch 486 Deluxe in the same place that you catch the Commodore Chronicles and Fine and Tandy right on the Commodore Chronicles podcast feed. If you want to submit feedback for Star Trek The Next Generation of Final Unity, you could do so in the normal means, either by the post that's going to be on twitter.com forward slash c64 chronicles or facebook.com forward slash c64 chronicles. And you can also send me an email at commodorechronicles at gmail.com. And now that we got the news out of the way, let's check out our next year on the Commodore years. The Commodore Years is a series we've been covering over the last two episodes of the podcast, highlighting the best games by year of release in a rapid-fire style. 1984 is a huge year for our beloved C64, so let's get to it. 1984. Electronic Arts and Freefall Associates are back at it with Archon 2 Adept. It's a sequel to the hit 1983 title, with new focus on tactics rather than just action gameplay. It's a little less frantic, and though it's good, I think I still prefer the original. Sierra Online's BC Quest for Tires reminds me of the obstacle portions of Moon Patrol, but is a great way to spend, I'd say, 20 or so minutes. Windhelm Classics Below the Root is a tie-in to a book series, and is an 
interesting adventure with the characteristic of what's now called a metrovania. You'll use various powers such as telepathy and telekinesis to interact with the environment and other characters, and flying around with your flying cape, called a shuba. It makes for a really interesting, neat game. For Star Software's Boulder Dash is a challenging action puzzler where your character needs to collect diamonds, avoid falling rocks, and cave monsters, and escape the cave before your oxygen runs out. Datasoft's Bruce Lee is an excellent martial arts action platformer where you must climb to the Wizard's Tower to earn infinite wealth and immortality, fight against Ninja and Yamo, a green sumo warrior, and make your way through the various obstacles. Broderbund's The Castles of Dr. Creep is a flip-screen puzzle platformer that'll have you escaping the 13 nefarious evil castles of the Doctor's. All of them share traits and characteristics with classic horror movies and characters. U.S. Gold's Drop Zone is very Defender-like. It's pretty darn challenging, but totally fun. Sharp graphical effects as well. Activision's Ghostbusters is, uh, I don't even know how to classify it, but it's a total classic. Capture ghosts, unite the key master with Zool, dodge the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, and save the city from danger and maybe even make a bunch of money doing it. Activision's Hero is a fun flip-screen arcade platformer that sees you commanding a jetpack, laser, and dynamite-equipped rescue worker tasked with saving miners trapped in a mine accident. It's fast fun that has that familiar Activision style. Epic's Impossible Mission is a multi-screen platformer where you're tasked to foil the plot of the evil Professor Elvin Adambender who is attacking the national computer system attempting to launch nuclear weapons. You have six hours to complete his puzzle and stop him. It's a great balance of action platforming and puzzle solving, and it's my absolute favorite C64 game of all time. Highly, highly recommended. Check out the full review on episode 6 of the podcast. Datasoft's Mancopter is a unique racing, almost survival arcade title where you pilot a pedal-powered helicopter over the ocean, avoiding pelicans and other obstacles to cross the finish line in each level. It's really darn weird. Check out uh, Damio Gurley's article on the website The Genesis Temple or Rob O'Hara's Sprite Castle episode for better detail on it. It's a neat game, though. Parker Brothers Montezuma's Revenge is a multi-screen platformer where you'll be taking the place of Panama Joe, hot on the trail of the treasure of Montezuma's pyramids. Quick action, cheery music, really round this one off. It's a blast. Parker Brothers Mr. Dew's Castle is a single-screen arcade title that's half Donkey Kong, half Burger Time, but also a bunch of fun. Electronic Arts One-on-One, -on -one, Julius Irving and Larry Bird is a neat one-on-one -on -one basketball game that I have a long history with, both on the C64 and the Atari 7800. It's a solid title, and really, it's a great game for all ages. Activision's Park Patrol is a wildly interesting arcade-style title that sees you as the guard of a busy beachfront with aggressive turtles and snakes, littering campers, and bipolar swimmers who either thank you for saving their lives or let the air out of your catamaran. Check out 
Rob Flack O'Hara's Sprite Castle episode on that for more details. Activision, I'm sensing a theme here, Pathfinder is a super unique shoot-em-up where you're part of a task force of explorers who are collecting artifacts from an irradiated planet. It's a really interesting title that features more of those amazing early 80s Activision-era art. Epic's Pit Stop 2 is one of the most beloved racing titles on the system. Just like last year's release of Pit Stop 1, it's a more complex version of Enduro or Pole Position. And it's really awesome if you play it with two players. Broderbund's Raid on Bungling Bay is a spiritual prequel to games like Desert and Jungle Strike. Take control of an advanced helicopter and foil the plot of the Bungling Empire to take over the world. This game is a technical marvel on the C64, and it was also covered on episode 2 of the podcast. Electronic Arts Realm of Impossibility is an isometric arcade platformer that covers 13 dungeons of the cleric Wizdrick the Evil. You need to take back the crowns he stole from the Middle Kingdom. With neat MC Escher-esque graphics and fun gameplay, this game is sure to keep your attention. This game was also covered on the 8th episode of the podcast. Muse Software's Space Taxi was featured on the first episode of the Commodore Chronicles and ranks in my top 10 favorite C64 games. You'll avoid obstacles and gravity to deliver your passengers to their ultimate destination. It's an amazing game. Origin Systems Ultima 3 Exodus is easily one of the most iconic RPGs on the C64. The last Age of Darkness entry in the series before it took the path of virtue in later releases. I have little experience with it, but what I have played is absolutely captivating. Synapse Software's conversions of Sega Zaxxon and Super Zaxxon are great isometric arcade shoot-em-ups, some of the most memorable shooters on the system. And a few quick honorable mentions are River Raid, Satan's Hollow, Space Pilot, which is a time pilot conversion, Splunker, Stop the Express, Tapper, Spy vs. Spy, Track and Field, and War Games. All worth a gander. 1984 was a huge year that really solidified the C64 as a top-notch home computer for gaming, and 1985 has some more seriously iconic titles. And now that we've covered this week's Commodore years, let's check out this week's full-size review. Ninja was released in October 1987. It was developed by System 3 and was published by Activision in the US and System 3 themselves in Europe. It was first released on the Commodore 64 but was also released for the Amiga, Acorn 32-bit and Electron, Apple II, Apple II GS, Atari ST, and BBC Micro. Notable credits include programming by John Twitty, whose credits also include Tau Seti, Akari Warriors, Cool Spot, and Disney's Aladdin. 
music by Ben Daglish, whose credits include music for Gauntlet, Jack the Nipper, Cobra, Rebounder, Deflector, Auf Wiedersehen Monty, Supercars, and 720, amongst numerous others. Also listed for music is Anthony Lees, whose credits include Captain America in The Doom Tube of Dr. Megaloman, Dream Warrior, and ISS, Incredible Shrinking Sphere. Lastly, design by Mark Kale, whose credits include World Karate Championship, Myth, History in the Making, Dominator, and Death Star Interceptor. The storyline of The Last Ninja sees you as the lone survivor of the great clan of ninja called the Mystic Shadow Warriors. As was customary in their tradition set, the Mystic Shadow Warriors would travel to the island of Lin Fen every ten years to learn from the Kaga Scrolls and pay homage to the Shrine of the White Ninja. Our nameless warrior was left behind to guard the clan's home, the Bunkin Kan Shrine. It was at the very island of Lin Fen that evil shogun warlord Kunitoki unleashed a brutal and calculated attack on your brothers and wiped them out, leaving you with a burning desire for revenge. The Shogun and his followers are still on the island desecrating the landscape, which is where our adventure begins. You travel through six locations to complete your quest. Through the wastelands, the wilderness, the palace gardens, the dungeons, the palace, and finally, the inner sanctum. You'll start weaponless in the wastelands, without weaponry. I'm starting to understand why the nameless warrior was left behind. You'll have three lives to spare, and you can find hidden apples throughout the levels for extra lives. And it's a really good idea to seek out these apples. You'll need the lives. Your main task in the first area called the Wastelands is to track down various items to aid in your quest. You'll head south first to collect your first weapon, a sword which is surprisingly weak. I don't know about you, but I think a sword does a bunch more damage than this one does. This thing must be as sharp as a butter knife. You'll be tasked to find the pouch, which helps you carry more items. You'll be tasked to find a key. And when you bow at the Buddha shrine, you'll be told to collect nunchucks, which are on a body of a dead warrior laying in the street. The last item you'll be needing to collect are the smoke bombs, which are required to pass the level's final enemy, a dragon. The enemies in these areas will head straight for you and attempt to block your path. If you make it by some of these enemies without combat, they'll even commit seppuku before you leave the screen to avoid the shame of failure. There's two areas in the wasteland that have turned a lot of players of this game off being a main attraction, and that is the river and swamp crossings. Both areas require an extremely precise path of movement, and also the control inputs of this game make traversing these kind of difficult. It'll take some trial and error to figure out exactly where to proceed, but I think if you play it enough, you'll eventually get it. After entering the next area of the game, the wilderness, you'll discover that you've been given an extra life. It's the only time in the game where an extra life is freely given. 
All other extra limes will be distributed by finding the hidden apples within levels. In my 30-plus years of playing The Last Ninja, this is as far as I have made it in the game. If I haven't lost a few limes through combat, I'll lose a life or two more in the swamp or river platforming sections. In watching of some of the long play videos on YouTube, the combat only gets more dangerous and challenging as you go. When you enter the dungeon, the fourth area, you'll encounter skeletons, and one hit from these skeletons will consume nearly half of your health. And that's where I've found that the second part of contention with Last Ninja, and that's its control scheme. Even simple movements in The Last Ninja are kind of convoluted. If you begin movement in a direction, your character will face that direction until you stop movement, but will only face another direction if you turn in 90 degree increments. So if you're facing the northwest side of the screen, you can only rotate to the northeast or the southwest by stopping movement and moving in a 90 degree direction from where you're facing. Then you'll need to rotate 90 degrees again to face southeast. If you press backwards directly in the direction that you're facing, you'll merely walk backwards. It takes a ton of effort and patience to get a hang of the scheme. Picking up items on your quest requires a pixel-perfect effort as well. I know it's confusing to say this, but combat is both simple yet difficult. You'll have three to four attack types depending on weapon, all by holding the fire button and pressing a direction. Button plus a left motion on the joystick does a slower, more powerful attack. Button plus right does a quick attack. Buttons plus up will do a neck attack with a sword or a staff. And lastly, button plus down does a front kick. A button in any diagonal direction will block attacks, and you'll need to master the block. Combat will take too many of your lives if you only attack. And now that we've covered the production, storyline, and some basic elements of the game, let's review it. The Commodore Chronicles reviews all games in the following areas. Graphics, sound, music, gameplay, replayability, and then we'll give it an overall score and compare it to other versions released. Graphics. One of the crowning achievements of all of the Last Ninja series is the graphics. The series of The Last Ninja is beautiful. The island of Lin Fen is full of apple blossom and bonsai trees, ornate temples, and rock formations. That and the highly detailed interiors the buildings really add to an immersive environment. Your character sprites, by contrast, are simple but very well animated. Graphics deserve 9 Ninja Shuriken stars out of 10. Sound. I think one of the faults of the last Ninja series is the lack of sound effects. There are none. Sound gets... Zero hidden apples out of ten. Music. What partially makes up for the lack of sound is the brilliant soundtrack by Ben Daglish and Anthony Lees, with each tune being between two and five minutes in length. 
each of them are detailed and anthemic, some of the best musical work on the C-64 itself. Music earns 10 smoke bombs out of 10. Gameplay. I struggle with this portion of the review. My highest gripes with the game is the control scheme. It's just not really all that well executed. And in the feedback portion of this review, you'll see that it's the biggest point of contention with many. This game is plagued by cheap instant deaths, jumping across rivers, and hidden traps ensure your progress will be hampered by lack of lives. You'll eventually grasp the concepts, but they'll definitely be frustrating. Even after 30 or so years of playing this game, I'm still frustrated with the controls. On a stream a few Thursdays back, I realized how badly I've actually regressed in skill on this game by not picking it up for about a dozen years. However, after a few more playthroughs and watching some walkthroughs in the days following, I've started to get a little better with some of my strategies, making it further than I had previously. And even though I still struggle, I'm starting to get along with the game more and more. That being said, gameplay only deserves 7 floating dungeon ghouls out of 10. Replayability. The Last Ninja is quite the adventure. The environment is captivating and the music really sets the scene. Though I haven't played it much in some time before reviewing it, I believe one day I'll beat it. The more I play it, the more I realize it's a possible task. Replayability gets 7 Mystic Scrolls out of 10. Overall score. The Last Ninja is a joy for the senses, only hampered by a few issues with controls and gameplay. You can tell that System 3's programming team spent countless hours ensuring that The Last Ninja would be a success, and I definitely believe they succeeded in making a, a brilliantly unique title that deserves praise and admiration. The Last Ninja gets an overall score of 8 out of 10. The Last Ninja was also released on the Apple II, Apple II GS, Atari ST, Amiga, BBC Micro, DOS, Acorn Electron, and Archimedes. The Apple II version lacks sound and music, and the graphics are slightly less detailed than the C64 version. The Apple II GS version also lacks music, but has an okay selection of sound effects. The graphics are only slightly more detailed, but they're still rather 8-bit. The Atari ST and Amiga versions both feature more textured graphics, but also lack sound. The soundtracks are similar, but I prefer the C64 version. The BBC Micro and Electron versions have CGAS graphics and sound effects, but no music. The controls seem a bit better, but the gameplay seems to be overly simplified, essentially turning combat into a button masher. The DOS version has good graphics and similarly good gameplay, but uses the PC speaker for sound and it's not good. And lastly, the Acorn Archimedes version features great graphics, sound effects, and decent music. However, the gameplay is completely broken. It's a real waste of great hardware. Now that the Commodore Chronicles has reviewed The Last Ninja and compared the versions, 
Let's see what you had to think about it. Malfunction. Need input. Input. All right, right. You got it. Okay. Many of the criticisms of The Last Ninja has to do with the controls and the difficulty of the river and swamp crossings. Marcus Baer mentioned, The river with the rocks is an almost insurmountable obstacle for me when I decided to play The Last Ninja. Hard to pick up objects with the required one pixel accuracy. Honestly, as a game, The Last Ninja is awful. I think of it as an interactive demo featuring some of the best graphics and music that was ever produced on the C64. J.C. Bonachin called The Last Ninja unplayable and overhyped eye candy. He went on to remark how awful the control scheme was and that it was game-breaking for him and many others. And I'll admit, he's not completely wrong. I had to spend numerous hours to gain even a decent grasp of the controls. They're just not intuitive enough for such a complex game. Fastload Collective member Jim Pones remarks, I never played it as a kid. When this came out, I was already full swing into the NES. The graphics and the sound are amazing for the C64, but those controls are horrible. Playing this as an adult... I just can't get into it. I lose interest too quickly. I'll admit, it took me a while to get back into it as an adult. Playing it on stream a few weeks back definitely led to a few moments of laughter and frustration. But the more I played it, the more I started to get the hang of it. So, thanks Jim. Bukovec Zoltan said, Fantastic game, cool soundtrack, Groundbreaking tech of breathtaking backdrops, mediocre fights, story slash targets are close to impossible to guess. I think it's a bit overrated, but many people like it though. JB remarked, this game invented rage quitting. Hit and miss whether you made the jumps over the rocks in the river, but when you did it felt great. Thanks for the memory. I don't know if he's being serious or sarcastic, so uh, I guess I could say, sorry to upset your day, Jay. (laughs) Stormidus Lordios said, I completed the first game for the first time about a week ago. I was playing it too much when I was a kid, but I couldn't understand how the controls worked. When you do, it'll be playable. Next in line would be The Last Ninja 2. That should be easier when it comes to precision jumping. I'll be sure to keep that in mind when the time comes to review the sequel. Thanks, Stormidus. Sven Simon said, Next to Gianna Sisters and Katakis, this one is one of my most played games back in the day. An absolute classic. Didn't mind the horrible controls as much back then somehow. Maddie Pelto Niemi called it an unforgettable game, mentioning the music was amazing. And the area level designs were pretty cool. Very atmospheric. Fighting was a bit meh, but pros easily outweigh the cons. He also mentions that he finished both Last Ninja and Last Ninja 2 with his father back in the day. Very cool. James Blondin remarked that he loves it and still plays it today. Also, that he completed Last Ninja and Last Ninja 2 back in the day. However, he didn't like Last Ninja 3. And that wraps up the last of our feedback. Thank you so much for all of the excellent feedback, everyone. 
And that's it for episode 11 of the Commodore Chronicles podcast. If you stuck around this long, I really appreciate it. The episode being released next is a fine and tandy episode questioning whether any early MS-DOS sports titles are any good. We'll be reviewing Lakers versus Celtics in the NBA playoffs, as well as PGA Tour Golf. After that, we'll be back to the Commodore Chronicles where we'll be reviewing Slicks. If you want to provide feedback for our next episodes, keep an eye out for posts on twitter.com forward slash c64chronicles and facebook.com forward slash c64chronicles. If you feel so led, you can also provide feedback via email at commodorechronicles at gmail.com. If you want to support the show's efforts financially, please consider supporting me at patreon.com forward slash c64chronicles. In the meantime, get out there, play your Commodore 64, because it's worth the loading time. (laughs) 